well, yeah, we'll jump in here and um, we're looking at part three of uh, church history, part one. So there's a lot of parts here. Um, but yeah, we're, we're through um, early Christianity um, and imperial church stuff, which is what we looked at last week. So we kind of got up to the late 300s, early 400s last week, and we're going to pick it up basically at that point. Um, tonight we're looking at the major events and developments that took place during the period known as the Middle Ages or medieval time, time frame. Um, it's like a thousand years uh, of what, what we call today the Middle Ages. I don't know who decides what, what we call these things, historians, I guess. But um, that thousand year period stretches from about the 400s at the, the point where Rome fell, uh, which we looked at at the end of last week, where the western half of the Roman Empire collapses because the, uh, the Germanic people come in and are able to actually militarily conquer. Um, at that point, it basically plunges the western part of the empire into, uh, you know, some, some people use the term dark ages to refer to this time. I'm not a fan of that because I think the there were a lot of things that were happening still. It wasn't completely darkness. But um, but it does plunge the western part of the world into some, some crazy times. Uh, and that stretches for about 1,000 years to about the late 1400s. So uh, tonight we're only going to get to about the 800s. And then uh, the next two weeks as we wrap this section up um, – We'll, we'll finish out the Middle Ages and we'll just kind of take it in, in chunks. So there's a lot of things we'll talk about ahead. Next week we'll talk about the Crusades, um, which of course is a pretty famous part of church history. We'll, we'll get into that next week. But tonight I just want to talk about two of the main things that um, came out of the Middle Ages, two institutions, and then two events that, that took place as well. So uh, the fall of the Western Roman Empire creates... Um, out of that, a number of different independent kingdoms. And I, I think because none of us have ever lived through like the collapse of a civilization, um, which is good. Let's hope we don't. Uh, but if we ever do, you know, it's not like we kind of envision it as, okay, something catastrophic happens and then what? What happens after that, right? But there's always something that emerges out of civilizations because there's people there. And so the, the Roman Empire collapses, as it was known at that time, but it gives rise to new, new things. And the two things that really grow during this time period are two institutions. Uh, they've already kind of started before this, but they really gain prominence during the Middle Ages, and that's monasticism and the papacy. So we looked at monasticism last week a little bit. We talked about how uh, when Constantine became emperor and kind of married the church to the state, there were Christians who were not happy about that and found that to be a uh, kind of a corruption of the Christian faith. And they end up leaving, basically getting away as far as they can into the desert and forming monasteries. Um, so that's one, but that's one institution that really starts to take off during the Middle Ages. And then the papacy is uh, another fancy word for what we call the office of the Pope. In the, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church, it's still the, the office. Um, but the, the papacy or the, the office of the Pope, as we know it, as we think of it, really 
began to develop during the Middle Ages. So we're going to look at how those two things came about, and uh, they kind of grew concurrently or kind of simultaneously, but ended up going in very different directions from one another, which is interesting. Um, and then the two events that we're going to look at during this 800-year, well, 400-year period of time that we're looking at tonight is the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, we looked at the Council of Nicaea last week. This week we got to talk about the Council of Chalcedon, another big deal there. And then the coronation of Charlemagne uh, is where we'll wrap it up. So that's uh, where we're heading. Um, let's spend some time talking about monasticism. Um, do you, all, you all probably know what I mean when I say monasteries, right? It's places where monks live, where these religious orders exist. Um, I think most of us have some conceptions of monasteries in our minds, uh, you know, drawn from movies or television or, or maybe even church experiences. But uh, the, the monastic orders really began uh, to take off in earnest during the Middle Ages. So like I've already said, there's, um, there's been monasteries for a long time, since before, you know, really after the 300s through the four, into the 400s. Monasticism was a way for people to, to live out their faith in what they believed to be a more true or pure way in accordance with Scripture. There were people dissatisfied very early on uh, with, with the direction that the church was going under Constantine. But early monasticism uh, really just kind of worked, out, worked itself out in the deserts, in Egypt. Uh, Egypt really wasn't too much under the control of the Roman Empire, so there's a little bit more freedom down there for people to escape and get away from, from Rome. And so that's where kind of early monasticism formed. But th- this whole institution really began to rise during the Middle Ages. And it has really influenced the church even to this day. We, we feel the ripple effects of monasticism to this day. And I think in some ways for, for good and in some ways maybe not for good. But... Um, Really, in the centuries between Constantine and the Protestant Reformation, almost everything that was happening in the church during the Middle Ages, um, from, yeah, you know, after Constantine to the point that the Reformers came onto the scene, anything that was really noble, true, or good uh, in the church that pointed to the gospel was done either by those who had chosen to become monks in the monastic orders or those influenced by them, uh, and I and I don't mean to overstate it, but but like there there was not a lot of like bright spots in the Middle Ages, as far as the Christian faith goes. A lot of darkness, a lot of um, corruption. Um, the the papacy, as we're going to see later on tonight, did not go in a healthy direction. Um, but there was a bright spot, at least glimmers of hope, that the gospel wasn't dead. Uh, because of the monasteries, and I think we we should um, we should give credit where credit's due. That that God did, even with its flaws, use the monastic orders to to preserve something good uh, within this time period. So I'm not trying to overstate things, but uh, I, yeah, the monastic communities that existed during the Middle Ages were one of the rare lights of the gospel. Um, they're they're certainly you know, other, other things we could point to, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, for example, is a bright spot. But the things that the monks were doing, um, the ways that they were leading out uh, their faith were, were very significant and 
I think, largely helpful. Um, so I'm a Protestant. I'm an evangelical. Um, I believe that monasteries and monasticism is flawed uh, in some significant ways, and I'm going to share some of those. Um, but I also think we need to appreciate it and uh, commend it for what it was as well. It, it had its problems. It still has its problems. Monasteries still exist. Um, but, um, and I think that as a Protestant evangelical pastor, I have a lot of things I can criticize about monasticism. At the same time, I can appreciate what, what has come out of it as well. There's some positive things. For one thing, the Protestant movement itself, as it moved away from Rome, was deeply impacted by monasticism. So Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk before, uh, well, as he discovered what the true gospel was in the scriptures, was an, an Augustinian monk and was deeply influenced by Augustine. Um, John Calvin was greatly influenced by Augustine. Thomas Cranmer and the other leaders of the Reformation. So if you don't know who these three guys are, uh, we'll get into them when we get into the Reformation. But Luther brought the gospel uh, really to Germany, John Calvin to Switzerland, uh, Thomas Cranmer to England. Those are kind of the, the, the figureheads of, of the Reformation happening in those respective countries. Um, lots of different European countries had different leaders of the Reformation. But as they broke away from Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, they obviously used the scriptures. That was their primary source. But they also found uh, the teachings of the monastic order to be incredibly influential as well. So let, let's talk through what are some of the positive contributions. There's, I'm going to get into the negative stuff too because there's a lot of negative. But what are the positive contributions that monasticism, the monasteries during the middle, medieval period of the church uh, brings to us today. Uh, here's, a, here's a list of some things. One is if we read the scriptures in a language we can speak, we're benefiting from the tradition of biblical translation that a monk named Jerome really uh, worked towards and has continued to inspire generationally. So the fact that you and I can go to Amazon or to a bookstore and buy a Bible in our language that we read and understand uh, is because monasteries and people who lived in monasteries, the monks, were translating the Bible. Now, they weren't translating it into English because English wasn't really a thing then, but um, they were translating it from Greek and Hebrew into Latin and, and then into other languages. Eventually, it gets suppressed by the Catholic Church and the popes and wanting to keep people from having access to the Bible. So there's a point in time where the, the Bible translation stops um, and then gets kicked back up again. Uh, by Wycliffe and England and some other people as well. But anyways, the fact that we read our Bibles in our own language does follow in the tradition of the monks. Secondly, if we sing songs together at church to praise God, which we do on Sundays, uh, we're following the, the hymn-writing monks, Gregory, Bernard, and others who lead the way. There's, there's a tradition of writing songs that praise God and bring, bring him uh, praise. And so the fact that we sing these songs that aren't just straight from the psalm book, which, you know, some, some churches do choose to just sing the, the, the uh, psalms. Um, if, if we're not in a tradition like that, which our church is not, we, we can thank the Lord that there are people who want to write songs and help us praise God in those ways. 
Uh, if we are pursuing theology in any meaningful way, we can be indebted to uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who were both members of monasteries, and um, they, they really lead the way in the medieval time for us to understand how to pursue theology and study the deeper things of God. Um, if we pray for the success of Christian missions, uh, we're asking for God's help as people follow in the footsteps of people like Patrick, who goes to Ireland, and Boniface, and Cyril, and these, these monks who left their homes and left their nations to go bring the gospel to foreign lands. Um, so that's something to commend. If we believe we ought to cultivate the Christian life through spiritual disciplines, like reading the Bible, uh, prayer, biblical meditation, fasting, silence, and solitude, then we're following in the footsteps of what the monastic orders have led, led towards. And we can, of course, argue that the Bible tells us to do all these things, and it does. Uh, and yet, the practice of it that we're following kind of in the footsteps of is through the monks. Uh, they, they really highlighted during this very dark time of Christian history the importance of these disciplines. And I think that that's something that we, as, as evangelical Christians who believe we should read the Bible and pray and, and fast and do these things throughout, throughout our, our days to grow in our faith, that's, that's because we're learning from our predecessors. Monasticism is not uh, the answer for uh, really any, anything about the Christian life. I don't think that it's the solution, right? Um, it has flaws, has major flaws. But its impact is a very, a very big one. It, it's, it can't be underestimated really on how the gospel during the medieval Middle Ages, it, the gospel continued to shine a light through this institution. Uh, it's not through the papacy, which we're going to look at. The papacy was not the place that really highlighted the, the, the work of Jesus Christ. The monastic orders was really the place that the gospel continued to make an impact. Uh, and so for that, we can be grateful. Um, so um, the earlier forms of monasticism, right, we talked about this last week, happened in the desert. But as we're talking about the Middle Ages, as we're talking about this period from the 400s to the 1400s, this development of monasticism really goes to a guy named Benedict of Nursia. Um, so Benedict is the guy who gave the most decisive and by, and by far uh, the most influential and beneficial shape to what we think of as monasticism or the, mon the, the monasteries. Um, Benedict is the guy that almost every, every modern-day monk, if you, if you were to meet a monk today or a nun who lives in a monastery, they're almost always going to point to Benedict as the guy who they're, they're paying attention to, for good or for bad. For bad. But um, just pointing him out because this is church history and this is a guy who played a huge, huge part in this. So he plays a decisive role um, because he wrote this thing called his rule, which was uh, a very long document uh, that combines the zeal of early monastic pioneers, right? These, the, the monastic order grows out of dissatisfaction with where the church is going with Constantine. Constantine is corrupting the church, so they say, and I would agree. Um, he's corrupting the church. 
let's get out of this. Let's start these communities of faith that are truer to the gospel. Basically, our modern-day Protestants, in, in, our, in our understanding, they're, they're rebelling, they're protesting against the direction of the church under Constantine. Well, fast forward to the Middle Ages, and um, those orders were going on, but Benedict felt like there needed to be some consistency, some kind of a standard, and so he wrote the rule, his rule. And it's a long thing that, that ultimately lays out the expectations for those who live in monasteries, um, but it was a flexible document that was trying to take into account various conditions on the ground. So climates of where people live, quantities of food, uh, the monk's age and health and degree of spiritual maturity. He, he's kind of building in this, this um, set of principles that need to be followed but still have flexibility. And I think because of that balance, it's become the most, uh, it has the most longevity of all the, of all the things that we're looking at today. Um, so his manual was not for slackers. Uh, it, was, it was quite intense. It required uh, the renunciation of all, all your personal property. You couldn't own anything. You had to give it all away or give it to the monastery. Uh, you, had to, you had to pray at specific times, eight times a day. Uh, one of those would be at midnight and then seven other times throughout the day at specified times. Uh, you were required to um, have do physical labor. You were a part of a monastery, a community, so you had to help help out. Um, and then you had to be totally obedient to the abbot or the father of the monastery. So it's not something that every everybody's going to want to jump into and do. It's a, it's obviously a pretty intense thing to renounce all your worldly possessions and join this group of people. Uh, but that's what that's what Benedict's rule was was requiring. Um, Benedictine monasticism, like I said, is the most common form of orders today. Uh, I just recently found this out. You might know this. Uh, there's a monastery near White Lake. Uh, it's, it's a group of nuns out there who are called the Order of Julian of Norwich. And I just ripped this off their website. They have a website, weirdly, even though they're in a monastery. But here you are. Uh, they say it's a contemplative monastic order of the Episcopal Church. So the Episcopal Church is Anglican, but the U.S. version of Anglican. Um, so they're, they're actually Protestant uh, nuns. But they're committed to intercession and con- uh, conversion of life in the spirit of the teaching of St. Julian of Norwich, uh, who I had to look up today. And I guess she was like, I don't know, some lady in England a long time ago who wrote some things. Um, the nuns of the order live the monastic life together under Benedictine vows. That's the part I wanted to highlight uh, of stability, conversion of life, and obedience. So, so even in Little White Lake, out in the woods, there's this group of nuns who are following the Benedictine vows and are doing their thing. So kind of interesting. Um, all right. Well, I, I walked us through a few of the positives Right, some of the things that come out of monasticism that I think were good and positive and right. There's also negatives. So I'm a Protestant. Uh, I have my issues with uh, monasticism, and, and I'm going to give you several. But <clears throat> one of them is that I'm always concerned about the legalistic, works-based uh, appearance in monastic orders. I think that monasticism can obscure or make a little bit difficult to see what the free grace of God is for us. By, by putting rules on ourselves, 
by, by adding additional things to our lives that are not commanded by, by God and Scripture, I think can uh, and has the potential to obscure uh, what, what God teaches us about grace. And this is just generally my issue with Catholicism as a whole. If I had to nail down a specific reason why I'm not Catholic, um, it would be because I think that with all the extra things that they throw into their, their version of, of Christianity, Jesus gets obscured. He's, he's harder to find because they've got all this extra stuff built in. And I think that's a real danger in, the, in general. And I also think it's a clear danger in monasticism. I think that our, uh, our understanding of grace through, through Jesus and that none of our salvation is based on works can be obscured as we add all these additional laws and rules onto ourselves. So that's a, that's a danger, I think, that we need to be mindful of and a negative. Um, another question I've, I've had to ask is, um, is it actually more godly to live a life deprived of personal possessions and marriage? Uh, to go without marriage is a requirement under Benedictine uh, principles. You have to be celibate and you have to be unmarried. Um, but is that picture of Christianity actually a picture of a more godly life? Or another way to ask it is, is this, is the Christian life really more about fasting or feasting? And I think there's the answer is it, there's both in the Christian life. There's times when we fast. There's times when we deprive ourselves of things of earth. There are times that we uh, have to say, what I own is not my own. Actually, we always have to say this. What I have is not my own. It's given to me by God, and I have to use it for his glory. All that's true, but is it actually helpful, or is it actually a picture of the godly life to universally throw away everything that we have and just live in these compounds with, with other people? I, I, I'm suspicious of that, and I don't, think it, I don't think it actually does represent a more godly life. Jesus, in his, in his life was far more criticized by his contemporaries, by the Pharisees, for feasting and celebrating than he was uh, fasting or, or doing these, these um, you know, self-deprecating kind of things. Jesus' first public miracle is making water into wine at a wedding feast. In that, he's signifying his willingness to be at a wedding feast, which means he's it's implying, at least, that he is supportive of marriage ceremonies and celebrations. And the fact that he supplies the wine, which is directly connected in that culture, especially to the fun of the wedding, um, and he makes an abundance of it for the people to enjoy, uh, tells us something about his heart. Uh, and so I don't know. I'm not sure that the monastic life actually points to what is more godly. So that's another question. Uh, a third big question for me is this does what jesus model for us in his incarnation justify withdrawal from the world right because that's kind of the whole thing with the monastic orders is you are as much as possible you're removing yourself from the world from the world you're getting into your own little compound you're doing your thing you're going to try to be as self-sufficient and self-sustaining as you can be um, yes you're with other christians but you're you're trying to avoid all the worldly entanglements. But does Jesus himself in his incarnation and coming to this earth 
as a man, leaving heaven for this earth, actually teach us that we should do the sin, that we should retreat from the world? I don't think so. I, I think that, and I think the biblical model of what Jesus tells his disciples is as the Father sent me, so I send you. This idea of being sent into the world, not to, with, not to retreat from the world, not to withdraw from the world, but to go into the world and be of, in it but not of it uh, is the biblical call. So yes, I mean, there's, there's a balance here because we're not to be of the world. And I think those in the monastic orders would say, well, how can you not be of the world when you're so engrossed in it and immersed in it? And so I'm sure that they would have criticism to throw back at me too, right? That's, that's, the pro, that's the issue with all of this is there is a, it's a delicate balancing act because there is a call for Christians to be willing to let go of their personal possessions, being willing to deprive themselves of certain things, of course. But are we called to do that entirely? That's, that's, where, the, that's where the lopsidedness comes in. Yes, Christians are not called to be uh, of the world. We're not called to live under a worldly system that, <laughs> that values things that God does not value. But does that, does that lead us to be lopsided and just full removal as much as possible from the world? I don't think so. So, so again, there's, there's tension there and there's balance. Um, but in light of all of those negative things that I'm kind of thinking about, um, I honestly just don't think that the monastic way of life is what Christians have to pursue. Now, I guess if someone feels deeply called to that, I'm, I'm not going to you know, rip on them too much. I don't, I don't have a huge problem with what somebody feels they should do in that regard. There's much worse things they could do, I suppose. Um, but my main point here is that I think we should be grateful for our medieval predecessors who taught us the value of the spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and prayer and contemplation and silence and solitude. These are all good things to implement in our lives, things that can help draw us closer to Jesus. Um, they also teach us the importance of community in, in a faith, a faith a community that worships together. I don't think that means we all have to live together in the same house, but you know, we can worship together, we can serve together, we can, we can do life together um, and I just don't think we have to jump all the way into let's buy a compound and all live together and then have all these problems, right? Um, so that's, that's where I would draw the line is I think there's things that they're getting right. I also think that they're maybe taking things too far. So there you go. That's, that's my two cents. Um, a couple more things here that monasticism helps us with. Um, it does remind us that Christians should live simple and generous lives that we shouldn't be driven by materialism and greed. Uh, but instead, we should use what God has given us to love and serve others. That's a positive thing that the monastic orders remind us of. But again, does that mean we have to renounce all of our worldly possessions to do that? No, I don't think so. It just means we have to reorient our mindset and our hearts around these things. So what's crazy to me as we... Uh, we look at this first institution. We're going, to get, we're going to turn next to the second institution of the Middle Ages, which is the papacy. What's crazy is that as we look at these two institutions that rose during the Middle Ages, um, these two things become so contradictory, and they go in such completely opposite directions that it's almost whiplash-producing. It's just crazy how the monastic order, which can be 
so quiet and simple and self-deprecating can can be built up at almost the exact same time as the papacy with all of its pomp and wealth and greed. Um, and it's just, it's just wild, actually. So there's two things happening in the Middle Ages simultaneously. One is deprive yourself of all the worldly good, and the other is let's let a handful of people just have everything in the world. And it's kind of, kind of nuts. So to that end, let's get into the papacy. Um, so this is the second institution which jointly with monasticism gave unity and continuity to the Middle Ages. So this is just a fancy way of talking about the office of the Pope. And we, we all know the Pope is the head of the Roman Catholic Church. He is the Bishop of Rome. He is uh, the guy who spears the, spearheads the, the leadership of what is now, what we call now the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, at this point in history that we're talking about, it, there was no Protestant church and Roman Catholic church. There was just the church, the Catholic church, the universal, that's what the word Catholic means, the universal church. And so in earlier times, the word pope, which just is a word that means father in, I think, Latin, um, in early times, it was just a term of respect for those who served as bishops. And so it was just kind of thrown around for Anybody who served in the role of a bishop, whether you were in this city or that city, didn't really matter. That was just kind of what they called you, sort of like we can call people pastor or what. It was just a title for a particular person and, and, and with a position. Um, but the papacy ends up changing over time. And church tradition tells us that the origins of the papacy begins with Peter uh, and and that they have now followed the line of apostolic succession ever since. So the, the Catholic Church will, wants us to believe that there's this just nice, clean line from Peter to, what's his name, Francis now, um, that you have this nice, clean line, and, every, and it all just makes sense. But that's actually not true. Um, there are various lists, different lists, that, that kind of lay out what the papal succession is or looks like, and they actually don't even agree with each other. There's a lot of contradictory lists out there that say, well, one list will have this group of popes, this one will have this group of popes. It's not as clean cut as we would, we, they would like us to think. But for the purpose today, uh, for our class, we're going to look at the rise of the papacy, this, this office that has now become known as the, the pope, um, how this came about, where this came from. So it happened as the uh, barbarian invasion took place in Western Roman, uh, the rest Western Roman Empire. So we talked about this last week at the very end. We talked about how the, the Germanic people, the barbarians from the north, come down, conquer the Western portion of the Roman Empire. Remember how Rome, the Roman Empire was split east and west. Um, Rome was the seat of power for the west. Uh, and, and then the Eastern Empire was kind of doing its thing. So the East didn't really fall. It, it actually had a very long, uh, pretty, pretty safe uh, existence. It existed for like another thousand years. It became known as the Byzantine Empire over time. Uh, but the Western Church, or the Western uh, portion of the empire, rather, uh, was, was conquered by the barbarians, was... Um, and, and really just continued to have the onslaught of various smaller countries come at them. 
And so in the West, it's the church that ends up becoming the guardian of what was left of this ancient civilization. So Rome in its glory has collapsed. And in this power vacuum, uh, the church and the leaders of the church at that time really become uh, the guys who step into that void. So you, you all know that this is what happens when there's a, when there's a vacancy of leadership, something's going to step in there. No one's going to just like let the thing you know, go on without leadership. And because of just the right situation and the, the, the particular thing that was happening at this point, uh, that means that the, the Bishop of Rome uh, was the one who kind of stepped into that vacuum. So basically, the most prestigious bishop in the western part of what was the Roman Empire was the Bishop of Rome. Rome was still the biggest city in that part of the world. It was still a big deal. So the leader of the church in that region, in that city, becomes the focal point for ultimately regaining unity that in the west that, that had been shattered by these invasions. So let's talk through how that happened. Um, the, the prime example is this guy named Leo, and he's called Leo the Great now by historians, and I put great in parentheses because I'm not sure he was great, but um, he is Leo the Great. Okay, so uh, history is written by the victors too, so you gotta, we also have to kind of read into that and go, let's, let's be a little suspicious about some of this. But um, he, was, he is the guy that really existed as the first pope in the modern sense of the word. So when you think of the Pope, you think of the guy in Rome or in the Vatican who's leading the church, and that's kind of the modern understanding of this office that we have. Um, Leo was the first guy to kind of fill that role. There had been other bishops of Rome. There had been other church leaders in that part of the world, but he's the guy who kind of steps into what we now call the papacy. This happened because in 452, Italy... Uh, was invaded by Attila and the Huns. And they were basically ransacking Italy. They were heading down to Rome. And uh, the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, was was asked for help by the West. And they basically were like, not our problem, not going to help you. Uh, and so they just stayed out of it. And the so what happens is that the, the guy who was calling himself emperor in the West was basically powerless. He was weak. He didn't have the resources. He didn't have the military. He didn't have the, the character qualities. He was just kind of a helpless person. So there's this power vacuum, like, I've, like I said. That's kind of the, the situation that we're in. The, the guy who's supposed to be leading the Western world is not doing it. And so then you have enter Bishop Leo, uh, who decides to take matters into his own hands. And he leaves Rome, and he marches out to meet the Huns. And again, history is written by the people who, you know, make it or whatever. So legend has it that Attila sees Peter and Paul, the apostles who had been dead for hundreds of years, marching with the Pope and threatening him. And that leads him to retreat. Okay, obviously, I don't know that that actually happened, but that's what they say. That's what Leo says happened. Uh, I'm a bit suspicious about that, but Attila does not attack Rome. We know that ha- that, that happened. Something makes Attila the Hun uh, turn around and, and not go all the way to Rome. So the fact that 
Leo is able to, or maybe Leo and his buddies, Peter and Paul, I don't know, these guys somehow stop Rome from being destroyed by the Huns. And that obviously is going to make everybody pretty happy about that. If you live in Rome, you don't want, you don't want to be destroyed. So that's, that was a success. And then a, a bit later in 455, the Vandals sack Rome. Uh, they make their way all the way to Rome. And Leo, for some reason, Peter and Paul weren't available this time. They didn't, he, they didn't get to stop the invaders. But he did uh, enter into negotiations with the Vandal leader, and he was able to prevent them from burning down the city. So I guess that's a win in some regard. Um, they still pillaged and stole and did all the things, but they didn't burn the city down. So there's, there's a win. Uh, and Leo led the negotiations for that. So he's basically taking just him. He's just kind of of his own you know, volition deciding to take the, the leadership role here and being the guy who's going to be the defender of Rome. And... So it was situations like that and some other situations similar to that that gives Leo a lot of authority in Rome. Obviously, the guy who's going to do something, the guy who's going to show up and actually you know, get things done is going to be seen favorably by, your, by the population. And, and so this was kind of a combination of his leadership gifts, which is un- unquestionably he had leadership gifts. Um, you know, you're not going to ride out against Attila the Hun and and, and negotiate with the Vandals uh, and not have some kind of ability to lead forward, right? So he has these gifts. And, of course, it was also the political situation of the time, which was this very weak and ineffectual civil government that couldn't do anything and were just kind of helpless and hopeless. And so th- that was just kind of the perfect scenario for Leo to step in and become kind of the authority for the city of Rome even though his real job was to be the bishop and to lead the churches, he's now kind of morphed into this civil authority and civil leader. And then he, uh, he ends up going on to um, convince everybody or himself, and probably both, that all of this is from Jesus, that Jesus is the one who's given him this ability, and he ultimately is the guy who kind of comes up with this idea of papal succession, uh, he says that because Peter was the bishop of Rome, which is historically questionable, um, but he's a you know we we think that Peter did end up in Rome, and we said this in the first week of the class that some historians believe Peter ended up in Rome and then died at the same time as Paul. Okay, so if that happened, then Peter was in Rome at at the end of his life at least. Um, but but Leo is like well. If Peter was in Rome, that means he became the bishop of Rome. And if Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter as the bishop of Rome, and I'm the bishop of Rome, therefore, through the transitive property, now I'm in charge of the church. And so he just basically declares himself to be the the guy who leads the church. And nobody really has anything to say about it because he's doing a great job and he's, he's keeping Rome alive. So... So that's kind of how the, the papacy starts, is the Bishop of Rome becomes kind of, kind of morphed with this civil authority within the city. All right, fast forward a little bit. Leo dies in 461, um, and there was a bunch of popes that came after him. Not many of them did much of significance. Most of them were just kind of maintaining still continuing to protect the city, still kind of continuing to do what he was doing, following his policies. 
And then you get to Pope Gregory. So Pope Gregory shows up, and he's uh, several people down from Leo. Um, but he became a really big deal in, into what we now think of as the papacy. He really took the office and uh, ran with it and um, did some very interesting things. Now, Pope Gregory is also referred to as Pope Gregory the Great. Um, I think he's the last thing from great. So not, not so much going to even give him that, that title. But he is, um, you know, he, he does play a significant role. He does some good things as far as the civil authority side of things go. He was the pope uh, during um, some additional invasions, and he protected the city during those invasions. Uh, there was also a very deadly disease that went through Rome during his, his leadership, and he led uh, some great efforts to sanitize the city, uh, to bury the dead, to keep, keep the disease from continuing to, to cause problems. He did a lot to feed the hungry during this, uh, this epidemic. There were good things that he did, for sure, for the people that lived in Rome. But his real uh, legacy, at least as far as I'm concerned, is his theological writings uh, that end up making him a pretty significant figure in history. And um, uh, basically, he's the first pope to start making some real changes to how the church up to that point thought about things. Um, he was the first pope to declare a teacher outside the Bible as infallible. So up to this point, the, the, the Bible is seen as the infallible word of God. Uh, and Gregory decides that Augustine or Augustine is also infallible. And so Augustine, obviously, we talked about him last week. He's obviously an important figure in church history. He wrote a lot of things. He did a lot of good. Um, he influenced the, Ref the Reformation probably more than any theologian in, in history. <clears throat> he was a biblical guy, and he would be rolling in his grave if he knew that, that Gregory had made, made his writings infallible. I know he would. He would never have wanted that. But Gregory was very influenced by Augustine. And so he says, well, everything Augustine is basically at the same authority and level as scripture. He just elevated Augustine to that same degree, which was a, which was a huge change in, in policy and belief uh, up to that point in the, the church. And even though he declared him infallible, he also manipulates a lot of the teachings of Augustine he, or, or maybe on a more positive or maybe a more fair assessment. Uh, maybe he just misunderstood Augustine. I don't know if it was a manipulation to make it say what he wanted it to say or if he just genuinely didn't understand Augustine's teaching. But he made some real critical mistakes, in my view, uh, about Augustine's teaching. For example, there's a particular place where it was like a one you know, one little spot where Augustine maybe is speculating, not nailing down anything specific, but just speculating in his writings about the possibility of a place where there could be purification for those who die in sin. Okay, well, people speculate about things all the time. If you and I had everything we ever thought written down, we'd have a lot of weird ideas too. But um, Gregory takes that and then runs with it and creates what is now the doctrine of purgatory. And he goes, see, Augustine, who is now elevated to the same level as Scripture, believed in a purgatory, even though it's very questionable that he actually believed in it. He was speculating about the possibility, 
but I, I don't think Augustine was landing the plane on any of those issues. But there Gregory's going, see, purgatory. All right, and purgatory, of course, if you're not familiar with that term, it's the place where the Roman Catholic Church believes uh, we go uh, when we die as a, as a kind of a bridge between heaven and, and earth, where if there's still remaining sin that needs to be dealt with, it gets purged, hence purgatory. And that may take, depending on how bad you were, may take a long time, may not, just depends. And, um, and ultimately, the doctrine of purgatory becomes one of the crucial points that leads to the Reformation, which I'll, without me getting too far ahead of myself here. But uh, the, idea that, the idea of purgatory starts with Pope Gregory. Uh, it eventually becomes this money-making scheme for the church to basically manipulate the, the church members to give money to the church to spring your dead relatives out of purgatory. And I don't know that that was Gregory's intention, right? Because that, that happened centuries after Gregory died. But... It, it led to the creation of this, this doctrine that led to a lot of abuse. Um, he also transformed and manipulated the teachings of Augustine related to the doctrine of salvation. And uh, Augustine taught and believed that God's grace f- through Jesus is what saves sinners as we believe in him. Like that's the gospel. He very clearly believed the gospel. He, Augustine wasn't right about everything he wrote, but he really did get the gospel, particularly God's grace. It was the themes of God's grace in Augustine's writings that led the reformers to the direction they went. And we can all be grateful for that because we, we follow in their footsteps. But what Gregory does is he kind of shifts the, the, the meanings here and, and basically shifts away from salvation by grace through Jesus to uh, what can we do to offer satisfaction to God for the sins that are committed. And, and he's the one who essentially creates the whole idea of penance uh, in the Catholic Church. This idea that we have to um, do something to make God happy with us again when we sin. So that consists, according to Gregory's writings, of contrition. So we have to be sorry for our sin. We have to confess our sins to a confessor, which is typically a priest. And then we have to you know, endure our punishment. So uh, if you've ever been in the Catholic Church, you know you go into the confession booth, you say something to the priest, and he tells you how many Hail Marys or how many rosaries or how many whatevers to do, and that's your punishment. And then you do it, and you're all, you're all good. All of that was because of Gregory. Okay? So, so uh, the, other thing, oh, the other thing that he did that I have to talk about here is he believed that Jesus is sacrificed each time we perform the mass or, or the communion service is what we would call it. Um, and that, so every Sunday, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine is every Sunday, Jesus gets re-crucified. Um, that's what the whole thing is. And the Protestant church obviously uh, disagrees with that. We don't believe Jesus is re-killed every Sunday. Uh, he died once for all on the cross. And that covers all of our sins as we believe in him. Gregory made that happen too. So basically everything that Protestants disagree with about the Catholic Church is like right in Gregory's lap. Um, so that's why he's not the great in my book. But um, he did good things, of course. Like we're not, we're, all, we're not all monsters and we're not all angels. We're just, he, he had positive things in his life. He also really, really messed up the church though in, in a lot of ways. And this is really, I see, as the beginning of the downfall 
of of the church that would that really had to lead then into reformation to begin with uh it's all kind of placed in gregory's lap in the in the 400s 500s um that that time period so very very messy stuff with gregory um so we'll get into this more uh in the next section of church history as we wrap up this part and then we get into the reformation um, but I think it's worth mentioning here just because we're on the subject of, of the papacy. Um, the, the real issue here has to come down to the question of authority. And that was the real question for the reformers, for, for Luther, for Calvin, for these guys who, who led the way in the Reformation in Europe. It was really the question of who is actually or what is our authority? Is it God's word or is it the pope? Or is it some combination? And the Catholic Church today, uh, even still today, even with some of the positive things, the Catholic Church has made some changes over since the Reformation that have been okay, um, but uh, they've never gone totally far enough. They've never reformed all the way. And they hold a view that basically authority is a three-legged stool. This is how they would kind of describe it. Um, There is... Uh, the Bible is one leg. They would say the Bible is an authority, is an authority. And that's where I would have the, the problem, is the indefinite article an instead of the definite article the. But um, an authority is the Bible. And then an authority is the Pope or the Pope as in the office of the Pope. Um, so papal tradition, papal, um, papal declarations, Okay, all of that. It's what, what was called ex cathedra, the things that they, they declare from the throne of the Pope, and all of that throughout all of history. And then, of course, you've got the problems with, like, when do the Popes contradict each other? And that gets kind of messy and interesting, but there you go. Uh, so you've got the Bible, you've got the Pope, and then they would say church tradition. So the councils um, of the church, which, of course, I would look at and go, yeah, these are good things, but they're not the same as the authority of the church. Uh, They only have authority in as much as they defend the scriptures. And so they would say that those things, those three things together make up what is church authority. That's the Roman Catholic view, roughly uh, speaking here. Protestants reject that. Um, we, We would hold that the Bible is the only authority we have for life and doctrine. That anything that we say, uh, needs to have something in the scriptures to defend and and prop it up. If it doesn't have, if it's not taught in scripture, it's not a doctrine that's necessary for life uh, and and the Christian faith. So um, obviously the the Reformation leads to that um, Protestant movement. And we'll get into all the ins and outs of that in the next session as we get through this one. But, But I just wanted to leave that. I wanted to start there because that's, or kind of finish on this section there, because that's a that's a big deal. Like that's that's a big deal. What where do these popes get the authority? And they basically just Leo and Gregory just kind of gave themselves the authority, and and then over time built systems around it that uh, have bishops and other other you know things that that exist around the pope. But but that's that. Um, so the papacy as kind of a summary here is an institution that began in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's continued to this day with pretty much little interruption. Now, there's been some questions as to different, like 
there's a point in history where there's two popes that show up and both claim to be pope and they have to fight each other about it and all that stuff. But for the most part, we've had a pretty, pretty smooth transition uh, from pope to pope throughout all the way to this day. Um, but really, this is, the, this is the thing that over time takes on a really um, dangerous uh, system and ultimately becomes really dark and really greedy and really self-absorbed. Um, and of course it does, right? Because it, these, these popes are humans. They're sinners like everybody else. And when you give a human being absolute power and basically all the money in the world and everything that they could ever want, of course it's going to go badly. It, just, it would for any of us. Like none of us would handle that kind of authority or power uh, very well. So the papacy is an institution that had, uh, I think, a good intention, like most things. Uh, it was certainly a necessary thing in the city of Rome in the early Middle Ages to protect it from the, the Vandals and Attila the Hun and these people who the, the civil authorities were completely useless to do anything about. But the fact that it inflated so much over time and has become what it is now is kind of sad. And so, so there's that. Okay, well, let's talk. Um, any questions about that? Let me stop there. And I know that some of you guys have grown up in Catholic churches and some of you haven't, but are there any, uh, yeah, any papal questions? All right. Well, you can ask. How does the Dark Ages relate to the Middle Ages? Yeah, it's kind of just a name for the same period of time. Um, it's basically just depending on... Um, what, you, what your perception is of the time period. So people who are more cynical about it would call it the Dark Ages, um, even though there, there was some things that were light in it, but largely dark, right? Um, so that, but that's, that's the difference, is just another name for the same thing. So, Okay, Council of Chalcedon. Um, this, is a, this is another thing that kind of flows out of the Council of Nicaea, which we looked at last week. Um, just like the Council of Nicaea, this was a gathering of Christian leaders from around the empire, from around the world. And the purpose of the Council of Chalcedon was, um, I think this happened in yeah, four, 451, I believe, was the year of the Council of Chalcedon. Um, its, defi- its intention is to define the nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, so this is flowing out of the Council of Nicaea. Nicaea, if we remember last week, it defines the relationship between the Father and the Son. So remember how the, the uh, heresy, the Arian heresy that was going around in the imperial time of in Constantine's day uh, was basically saying that Jesus Christ was not God because um, he... Arian had all the Arius had all these problems with understanding how the Trinity would work if Jesus is God, and so kind of made this whole thing about Jesus being the first creation and the highest creation, but not actually God. And the Council of Nicaea came in and was like, "No, absolutely not. Uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God." And so they defined that relationship, and then really helped to form kind of our understanding of of the the Trinity in a sense through that relationship between the Father and the Son. Um, so Nicaea says Jesus is truly God, but uh, that doesn't just settle it, right? Because it never, nothing ever does. Um, 
the opponents of the deity of Christ didn't just give up. And so they continued to kind of make this stink. Uh, but eventually, faithful Christians like Athanasius, uh, they continued to defend Christ's deity. And in the end, that, that became pretty much put to bed. Um, although, like we said last week, there's still Arian uh, groups out there, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for an example. Um, but they're definitely a minority in Christianity or pseudo-Christianity. Um, so after Nicaea, just going real quick through, because there are other councils here that we're not going to spend much time on, but after Nicaea comes the Council of Constantinople in 381, which uh, ends up rejecting the teachings of this guy named Apollinaris, who says that Jesus' divine nature had displaced his human mind and will. So basically Apollinaris's view, I think, if, I, if I'm articulating it right, is that uh, Jesus was a, was a man that God just kind of like controls his body uh, and his mind. And so according to Apollinaris, Jesus was not fully human. Uh, he may have just been kind of a human body, but it really wasn't human fully. Second uh, John 1, 7 uh, clearly denies that reality. Um, later, Nestorius says that Jesus has two separate natures and two wills. Uh, essentially making him two people sharing one body. So there's the, the God person and then there's the man person and they're completely separate, but they're kind of in this one human body and that gets, that gets shot down at the Council of Ephesus in uh, three, uh, 431. And so then the Council of nice, uh, Chalcedon in 451, I never put the dates on there. Uh, and actually, I think, I think it's 451. Someone can fact check me, but... I remember from my church history class in college, I think that I had to drill all those dates in my head, and I think that's right. Um, but they affirm, uh, they affirm the truth that Jesus Christ is fully divine and at the same time fully human, so that he is both the Son of God and the Son of Man, uh, that Jesus is the Word incarnate, uh, the Word being God incarnate, meaning in flesh, and that he assumed perfect humanity in order to save fallen humanity. He could not have saved us unless he was fully God and fully human. And so this is something that as Christians, um, we take for granted. Like this is a theology that we all affirm as Christians that Jesus is fully God and fully man. But the reason that we can be as confident about this as we are, is not outside, I mean, the fact that the, the Bible teaches it is helpful, but the church also affirms this and continues to lead in this direction, which is very, very good. So the Council of Chalcedon, without getting all lost in the weeds on it, um, basically goes through this whole long process of, of fighting all the heretics and all the people who are teaching false doctrine, and they come to the conclusion together that Jesus could, could only save sinful humans if he was truly God and truly man in one person. So that's uh, Council of Chalcedon. It's also a significant moment in history because there they officially ratify the Council of Nicaea in Constantinople. So up to that point, you know, Nicaea had happened, Constantinople had happened, um, but there was no formal recognition from the leaders of the church that these, these are the positions of the church until the Council of Chalcedon. So while they met to deal with the, the person, uh, the two persons of Christ, um, 
uh, and, and all that stuff that we just talked about, they also dealt with the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople and basically certified that those are the positions. So the council affirms the single personality of Christ and the authenticity and perfection of both his natures, human and divine. So there you go. That's Council of Chalcedon in a very basic, quick thing. Uh, one last sec- section tonight, and then we'll, we'll wrap her up here. And I want to talk about the coronation of Charlemagne. And then we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, just a, just a few slides, I think. But the coronation of Charlemagne is, is something that begins to shift uh, the direction of the church in the Middle Ages uh, for, uh, f- well, for good or for bad, we could, we could argue that. But basically, the coronation of Charlemagne is, happened on Christmas Day uh, in the year 800. Uh, so it's, that's an easy date to remember because it's a nice round number. And Charlemagne was the king of the Franks, which is in modern-day France today. Um, and so he's, he's already kind of, you know, a guy in a position of authority and power. And, uh, you know, he's in, he's in what, is, what is France. But on Christmas Day, he was brought down to Rome, and he was crowned uh, the Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III. So Pope Leo I was the first pope. Now we're on to Pope Leo III. Um, and this coronation uh, happened at the, during the Mass at the Basilica of St. Peter in Rome. Um, and immediately following the coronation, the acclamation of the people of Rome was heard to Charles, uh, the most pious Augustus, which is one of the names of, of the Caesars, uh, crowned by God, the great and peace-giving emperor, life and victory. So... Um, that was kind of the day that it happened and what happened. But the significance of the coronation of Charlemagne is that it created uh, what has become known as the Ro- Holy Roman Empire, which actually endured all the way until 1806, which is you know, in the grand scheme of human history not that long ago. Um, and the, basically the significance of Charlemagne being crowned the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is that it was sort of a, a new birth for the Western world. And the historian James Bryce says that, or believes that the coronation deserves the title of the most important occurrence in the Middle Ages. Um, and that's because his view is that um, if this ceremony had not taken place, the whole history of the world would have been different. That had, had Charlemagne not been crowned emperor of the Holy Roman Empire by the Pope, um, the whole shape of Western civilization as we understand it today would have gone in a different direction. Um, and what really happens here is the reason it, it takes such a prominent uh, role in history is because the coronation of Charlemagne by the Pope once again marries the church to the state, uh, just like with Constantine. Um, and essentially, it sets the stage for the rise of Western Europe. Now, again, um, that's going to be a long, we're not going to get into all of the history of how the West rose again, uh, but it does see kind of a, a resurrection of sorts after it had fallen uh, when Rome fell uh, through by the year 800 when Charlemagne becomes the emperor of the new Holy Roman Empire. Uh, it really does begin to set the stage for the whole Western world to rise again. And now we, as we live in America today, are beneficiaries of the Western world. Like we 
we breathe Western air. Like this is just how we think and why we think what we think is all informed by the fact that we are Westerners. And uh, I, think, I don't know that we really think about that as much as we maybe should, but all of that really does kind of stem from the fact that Charlemagne gets to become this, this emperor who then brings about this uh, unified, eventually, not through Charlemagne himself, but through what he, he kind of represents, creates this new united Western world. So the reason uh, behind the coronation was different for both these parties. I want to talk about this a little bit, that the Pope had one motivation, Charlemagne had another motivation. Um, They both agreed to this, but Charlemagne kind of begrudgingly lets the Pope crown him or do the coronation. Uh, uh, He wasn't really like, he wasn't super happy about it, but he let it happen. But basically Pope Leo's motivation for crowning uh, Charles here includes... Uh, an opportunity to reward the Frankish king for rescuing him. So, so that was part of this, is it was sort of payback for the fact that uh, Charlemagne, being the, the king of the Franks, did help uh, the, the, Roman, um, the, the, the Roman bishop like, protect himself from, from, from this battle he was in. Um, and the need for protection from Roman rebels, only an emperor could provide that. So it also secures this protection, and it also secures power for the papacy because crowning this new emperor was conducted by him, which means that he sort of has this, like, authority hold over Charlemagne. There's kind of this this game of who's more important than the other. And the pope was like, well, I'm really the guy in charge because if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be the emperor because I'm the one who put the crown on your head. And uh, Charlemagne is like, yeah, but... I'm, I'm the guy who's actually, like, running the armies and stuff. Um, but from Charlemagne's point of view, um, he was perfectly happy to, to take this title because he felt it was the only way he could protect the papacy uh, from the Eastern Empire. And uh, basically, he, he was a guy who wanted to have a lot of power, right? He wanted to have this authority. He wanted to have prominence. Who doesn't want to be, you know, this big shot? And so being able to become this emperor and have this whole title and all this stuff satisfies his ambitions as a guy. So, so there was, um, but ultimately what happens here is Charlemagne's reign uh, is pretty short. It's actually only, uh, I think, about 14 years. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it really sets the stage for the church to have its hand in what happens civilly in the in the governments of the world and this would be an ongoing thing for for a long time where basically european kings would would be coronated and the pope would be the one that gives his endorsements and it just gets all really really messy uh in that regard uh but charlemagne uh just for for his like lasting legacy here um he worked to build a strong centralized state. He fostered a rebirth of Roman style architecture. He promoted educational reform uh, and ensured the preservation of classic Latin texts. Um, one of his key advancements was the introduction of a standard handwriting script. So he, he it's called the Carolinga minuscule, but basically it, it innovated punctuation, you know, capital letters, cases, spacing, 
Whereas before, like all the words would just kind of run together in like ancient Greek manuscripts. There's like no telling where the where the word breaks are. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, and so Charlemagne did away with all that. He kind of created this this system of writing that we all again just take take for granted because it's just what we what we're used to. Um, but he was the one who kind of developed that, or at least uh, helped innovate that, um, which that ultimately led to the the production of writing and books and documents. Um, like I said, he died in 814, so 14 years after his coronation. But his legacy would provide the foundations. Uh, for later on the Renaissance, and then uh, also later cultural revivals. So um, from a non-Christian, maybe just like civil side of things, Charlemagne uh, led the way into some really good things. Um, but yeah, the the whole real issue with Charlemagne's uh, coronation is that it, it once again, for, I mean, so that was the year 800, really for the first time since Constantine, um, just sort of got everybody, the, the church and the state, all mixed up again. And um, as we saw with, with, with uh, Constantine, it didn't go well. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't go well when the church and the state just live together. Um, it, it leads to a lot of problems. And so once again, we're kind of back on that, that rodeo. Um, so there's that. I think I've just got one more thing to kind of wrap up with. It's um, just kind of a summary here. So like every era of human history, the early Middle Ages is a mixed bag, right? It's got some positives, but a lot of negatives, mostly negatives, which is why it's called the Dark Ages, or why many people have referred to it as that. Uh, the, the few little positives come out of the monastic orders. Um, the, the monastic orders helped us to see the importance of developing a spiritual life, right? And they, they really did lead the way in that. And so there was still some good that was happening in the world while at the other side of the, the coin, the, the papacy is showing us how easily power corrupts even those who may have good intentions. Uh, when you're given uh, ultimate power, you're going to be corrupted pretty easily. And then the Council of Chalcedon really shows us that God is still at work in helping people understand his word and, and believe the right things. Um, and that's a good thing. Like we should not just gloss over the fact that God defends the, the biblical view of his son, Jesus. And, um, and, and we can be grateful that God was at work in the midst of the Christians and uh, at the Council of Chalcedon. So there's a mixed bag as always, but that's, that's that. So that's what I've got. Um, next week, we're going to look at the Great Schism and then the Crusades. So two kind of really big things that happen towards the, the middle, middle of the Middle Ages. But um, we'll look at that next week. So 